Today's scripture reading is Leviticus 16, verses 1 through 10, the Day of Atonement. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place, with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Zazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on, one on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Zazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. This is the word of the Lord. Riveting stuff, right? I know what you're all thinking. You're just excited. I'm finally preaching Leviticus around here. You read it all week. You're just waiting for Pastor Jordan to bring it up on a Sunday morning. Today we begin Lent, the journey, the journey moving towards Easter. Like the season of Advent, which leads up to Christmas. Except that Lent is a little bit different. It's a more solemn time as we reflect on our sin and our need for a Savior. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul, in his preaching and his teaching, summed it up like this. I just want to preach Jesus and Jesus crucified. That's what it comes down to for him. The cross is central to our faith. After all, um, there's a cross right real big in the middle of our sanctuary, right? I mean, we can't say it any better than that, that the cross is central. But over the next few weeks, I want to reflect on the cross. Why is it important? Why does Jesus go to the cross? Many of you, when you were a child, were probably taught to say something like, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. How many of you learned that when you were a kid? Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Yeah, but I wonder if that's it. And I wonder if that question, just saying it that simply, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, actually brings up more questions than it answers, right? What is sin? How can Jesus take mine? Why do you have to die because of sin? And if Jesus died for our sins, how come we still die? How can Jesus die for me? Why does his death count as mine? Could anybody have died for me? Why does it have to be Jesus? Did Jesus die for everyone or just for Christians? 
How should the cross shape how I live today? Why the cross? Why wasn't Jesus beheaded, stoned? Or why didn't Jesus die in his sleep without any suffering? How does the death of Jesus relate to the birth, life, resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus? What about all this Old Testament stuff about sacrifices? How come we don't do those things anymore? How come we didn't just keep doing those things so Jesus didn't have to die? See, saying Jesus died on the cross for my sins is okay when your age has one digit in it. But the more digits you add, and then the higher the numbers go, the more I think we need to mature and grow in our understanding of what the cross does and what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. And so over Lent, I want to kind of explore that. And I'm going to try to explore it the way that the Bible itself does. And that is through metaphor and symbol. Okay, the Bible in trying to understand, the biblical authors trying to understand what Jesus did gives us lots of symbols, lots of pictures to help us understand what Jesus accomplishes. To be clear, I want to make this especially clear, that in the Bible the cross itself is not a metaphor. The cross is a real event that happened. Okay, and the Bible does not mess around with that. Um, the, only, the only thing that really gets done metaphorically with the cross is the Bible talks about you and I taking up our crosses. But the cross itself, the cross of Jesus, isn't a metaphor. But what the Bible does, it gives us all these other ways of uh, talking about the cross. It talks about ransom and redemption. It talks about blood sacrifice. It talks about courtroom and legal imagery. Uh, talks about Jesus recapitulating or retelling, recapping a story, the new Adam. Um, there's lots of ways in which the Bible talks about what Jesus does. We're going to talk about substitution. We're going to talk about adoption. All these different ways that the Bible writers are trying to get us to grasp what Jesus does. And I think the range of these metaphors is important. Because there's a reason why we don't have just one. There's lots of meaning to the cross. And by using metaphors, the authors are trying to illuminate certain things. They try to get us to understand certain things. But, but the problem is metaphors can only say so much. Let's take an example that I've used before, but it's a fairly common metaphor that we all are probably familiar with. Uh, and, and it was Tom Hanks said it, right? Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Right? Life is like a box of chocolate. You never know what you're going to get. And everybody says that's true. You know, my life has been full of surprises. Uh, at the same time, metaphors can only say so much. For one thing, have you ever gotten a box of chocolate that's all the same chocolate? Okay? Because if life is like a box of sponge candy, you know exactly what you're going to get because it's all the same thing in the box, right? Um, some boxes of candies are labeled. Okay? That totally ruins the metaphor also, Right? But how many of you have also had the other side of this, where, light, where in life you got exactly what you thought you were going to get? It wasn't really surprising. In fact, you made some mistakes that got you exactly what you had coming to you. In some ways, every metaphor has to break down. A metaphor can say something, but it can't say all things. Um, and there are lots of metaphors for life. Life is like a roller coaster. Life is like a puzzle. Shakespeare said, all the world is a stage. In other words, that life is a play and we're all actors in our own play. I heard it once said that life is a highway and I'm going to ride it all night long. Right? Lots of different metaphors you can use that all say a little bit about what life is but can't say everything. And so if the Bible has all these different metaphors for the cross, what it tells me is that we need all those metaphors. 
that in some way the Bible's grasping at this very big thing and it's giving us slices of it in different metaphors and we need to try to understand those. Um, so, to begin with, in our journey, we want to take a big picture look at this idea of atonement and we go to everybody's favorite book, Leviticus. Now, we don't often read Leviticus, let's be honest. Okay? Uh, there's only so much you want to know about how to kill bulls and rams and what to do with grain offerings and all of this kind of stuff. And after all, what we would say is, we don't follow those anyway, right? We didn't do a sacrifice this morning. We're not going to do one next week either. So why do you have to read it? Well, interestingly enough, we don't do those things in Leviticus because we believe Jesus fulfilled a lot of the purposes of those things. So if we go back and read Leviticus and understand why the Jewish people did some of the things that they did, why God told them to do those things, it can give us insight into why now we don't do them because Jesus in some way fulfills them. This passage that Jan read uh, is the beginning of the Jewish holiday known as Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now, we often use that term atonement in a negative way, as if someone must atone for their sins, make up for the bad things that they've done. But the word, uh, though it can be used that way, the word is simply a relational term. It's a relational term, and it's not that hard to understand. Okay, atonement, if you break it down into sections, says at one meant. At one meant. Okay, meant to make at one. So we've got two or three, two or more things that are separate from each other. Atonement says we bring them together. Okay, we bring things into relationship. The Day of Atonement was a day where all of Israel gathered together for prayer and fasting and to remember their need for renewed relationship with God and to make this sacrifice to God together. And the day actually has a very interesting backstory. It's associated with the second pair of tablets that, got, that Moses got from God on Mount Sinai. That's the date that supposedly is marked by uh, the Day of Atonement. So if you remember the story... Moses leads the people out of Egypt. And then once they get into the wilderness, he goes to Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord. He spends 40 days on the mountain receiving instruction from God, including a tablet where God writes the Ten Commandments with his own finger. And he comes down the mountain to find that the people have, in his absence, 40 days, gotten all their gold together and forced Aaron, the brother of Moses, to build a golden calf that they can worship. So there's a certain irony, right, to Moses coming down off the mountain with a tablet written by God, the first thing of which says, you shall have no other gods before me, to find that they are worshiping a god before them that they have made uh, in their own image. <clears throat> Moses gets so mad, he breaks the tablets. He deals with the people, and then he goes back up the mountain for God to give him the tablets again. And that is the moment that is recognized on this date of Yom Kippur. The context is crucial. Israel has been slaves. Okay, they've been things. Okay, they've been machines, in the co they've been cogs in the Egyptian empire, where all they were was what they could produce. And now God brings them out into the desert, and he wants to teach them how to stop being slaves and start living as free people, start living as his people. And so, so what God is trying to do with the people in the desert is teach them how to be free. 
But to do that, he's got to give some standards for how they need to live now instead of what they were going through. So Moses is giving the, given these commandments. Um, and he's just getting started, right? I mean, God is going to lead them by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. They're going to build the tabernacle so they have to deal with God's holiness. Uh, they're going to have a full sacrificial system, a full system of, of priests. And all this stuff is going to show them over and over again this discrepancy between them and God. Okay, That God is so holy that you better watch your step before you go in there. Okay, you better watch your step when you're handling the Ark of the Covenant. You better watch your step when you're around this God because God is so holy and we are so not holy that it's actually dangerous to go into his presence. Okay, they're going to find that they have to make all these sacrifices. When, God, when Moses goes up the mountain to be with God, he comes down with a shiny face. Okay, and there's a, this very odd passage in the scriptures where it says Moses had to wear a veil because people were so freaked out it's not the Hebrew version, but my version. They're freaked out by God's presence reflecting on their faces. He has to cover it. And Aaron has to go into this tabernacle, but he only goes with, with all this preparation. He's got to clean himself. He's got to wash. He's got to put on special clothing because God is so holy and we are so not. And you better watch your step in the process. Do you see the tension that arises? It's the same tension I think we sometimes feel with God. If God is so holy, and I am so not holy, how do I know that I'm okay with God? How can I be sure that I'm in good standing with God? How can I possibly stay true to my side of the bargain? So God gives the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the high priest of Israel would make a special sacrifice. He would take a a sacrificial uh, ram for the burnt offering, and then he would get these two goats, And the priest would cast lots. It's sort of like we would draw straws or roll the dice. And one goat would be sacrificed to God. Its blood would be sprinkled on the tabernacle. And uh, we don't don't always know what to do with this blood motif in the Old Testament. That's a whole other sermon coming in a couple weeks. Okay? The other goat, though, would be marked for Azazel. Uh, To be honest, we have no idea what Azazel means. It's one of those words we're just not quite sure. Does it mean uh, some kind of a demon? Does it mean some kind of a place? Is it just a word uh, that we have lost its meaning? We, we don't understand that word really, but we do understand what would happen. Okay. Uh, so after the one sacrifice of a goat, the other sacrifice, the priest would come down and, and put his hands on the head of the goat. And he would confess the sins of the people. He would confess that they are sinful before God, that they haven't done what they're supposed to do. And then they would let that goat go out into the wilderness. They would just let the goat go into the wilderness. The goat would escape. In fact, we have a term for that goat, and we still use that term in our English words today, the scapegoat. That's right. This is called the scapegoat, the goat that escapes. And it's this amazing symbol, right, that here's your sin put on a goat, And then your sin is lost. It goes out in the wilderness and you don't see your sin anymore. And uh, God doesn't see that sin anymore. It's gone. Out of sight. God does not keep a record of the sin. You don't have to keep a record of your sin. They're out in the wilderness. The goats show, these two goats show the two needs for atonement or at one minute. 
Something has to be done to pay the price for the sin that's been committed. Okay? Something's got to be sacrificed to make up for what's been wronged. But that's not enough. The other side of that is that God has to accept whatever is done on behalf of that sin. And, and God doesn't have to accept it, right? God doesn't have to say, yes, that'll count. Yep, that's worth it. God could say, no, <laughs> you sinned. You sinned against me. You were untrue to me. That's it. So there's two sides. There's the goat that has to be sacrificed, and there's the goat that is the scapegoat that gets away. There's a need for God to, to make atonement, to do something to correct the sin, but there's also a need for God to accept that sacrifice and to forgive and extend grace. And every year, the people of Israel would see this symbol again. Another reminder that there can be peace. Atonement is made at one minute restored. Of course, you could see the problem, though. is that the sacrifice had to be made annually. And there were other sacrifices. You had to just keep sacrificing. And what would you do if it was the Day of Atonement, and then two weeks later, you really messed up? Right? Two weeks later, you really make a mistake. How good does that go last? What if I commit a big sin in six months in, and now I just got to wait? Where does this cycle end that we just have to keep sacrificing and sacrificing and sacrificing? Well, the cycle ends when Jesus comes. See, Jesus is both goats. Jesus is the sacrificial goat that dies on the cross. And Jesus is the scapegoat that is risen from the grave. Okay, you got Good Friday where Jesus is sacrificed. And you've got uh, Resurrection Sunday where Jesus is also the goat that escapes. Where the sacrifice is both made and is accepted. Okay, where there is punishment and there is grace. In the cross of Jesus, we see Jesus as that goat that was sacrificed. In the empty tomb, we see Jesus as the goat that survived. He is the sin offering and he is the scapegoat. He is the needed sacrifice and he's the sign that proves God's grace and acceptance of that sacrifice. And just like Israel, we do not deserve it. Okay? Israel would have been reminded of that, that they don't deserve this. Why would I deserve this? I had a professor in college, Dr. Ron Tappy. He used to talk about deserved grace. Sometimes we think we deserve grace. We've been wronged, and so we should get grace or favor because we deserve it. Sometimes we have undeserved grace, which is where someone gives us grace, and we don't really deserve it. We didn't really earn it. He said, when it comes to God, we, deserve, we have ill-deserved grace. Not grace that we deserve, not grace that we don't deserve, but whatever grace is, we actually deserve the opposite of it. Okay? We actually deserve the opposite of it. It is a free gift of grace. You and I don't deserve atonement at one minute with God. We don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. I've made mistakes. I've had my flaws. I've continued to live my life for my way. And yet, God gives that grace, that atonement. And he doesn't just give it. He is the goat that is sacrificed for it. And in the resurrection of Jesus, we find that even though we don't deserve that grace, it's ours. It's ours. Jesus was both goats. The sacrificial goat and the scapegoat that makes atonement for us. 
And so as we begin this journey of Lent, and as we think about what Jesus accomplishes on the cross, let us just begin with a basic relational understanding that we are we deserve so much to be separate from God, and yet Jesus, ill-deserving that we may be, becomes the goats for us, that we can receive grace and favor. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.